You're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. Jack Ward and David Alt. They go together like peanut butter and ice cream. No, seriously. That tastes awesome. Try audio drama. That was close! Gotta see out this portal. Wow. It's that YouTubed weapon. It, it fired. But where? Oh. There's a crack in the folds of audio space. And that fissure is open like a black hole. Only it's filled with light. It's starting to draw everything in its path. The tortoise is being drawn in. What's holding us back? Here, maybe if... I can tap into the central processor of the tortoise. I can't change its trajectory, but if I can see where we're going... There! Seems like we're taking a dash through dash dashing. And coming up right behind Joe Bev's Willoughby. Bumley Banter Theatre Company presents Dash Dashing by Lee Ravitz. Dueling with dyspepsia since 1896, Johnson McCready, makers of the Easy Melt Soothing Syrup, are proud sponsors of the Bunbury Banter Company All Action Quarter Hour. A sect of Buddhist monks located by his dying father hones his mind and body almost from birth, gifting him with strength, endurance, intellect, and mastery of the martial arts. Now he travels the globe accompanied by his phenomenal three, cub reporter Dolores P. Paris, court attorney, Poindexter Pointsworth, and Cappy the Mouth Capistrano, ex-rum runner turned loyal friend, fighting always for the cause of truth, decency, and justice, certain that, in the words of Burke's dictum, for evil to flourish, it is only necessary that good men do nothing. These are the adventures of Dash Dashing Man of the Hour. In our previous astounding installments, through the auspices of the Lori's aged mentor, Professor Igor Dostoevsky Tolstoy Ivanovich, Dash Dashing and his remarkable crew have been alerted to the terrifying intentions of an old adversary, the screaming plutocrat and broadcasting mogul, Brutus T. Croesus. Croesus, the self-proclaimed the tiller of the airwaves, his fortune made after cornering the market in wireless transmission, seemingly aims to unleash a new secret device upon the world, shot to enslave the nation. Unknown to Dash and his bells is the fact that Professor Dostoevsky Tolstoy Ivanovich is playing a game of double cross. In hock to crisis after running up enormous debts in one of the capitalist gambling dens, the professor has been blackmailed into luring the gang into Croesus's clutches. 
Fine Dexter has been detailed to investigate matters at the Lucky Eight Speakeasy in the hope of finding creases of contact, known to have handed over original design blueprints in return for lavish funding. Meanwhile, Dash, Cappy, and Dolores have traveled to Creases' Long Island mansion in an attempt to rescue Professor Eagle following an apparent kidnap, only to find themselves at the Plutocrat's mercy, trapped in his giant glass aviary as he prepared to unleash upon them a verminous breed of vampire bat discovered on his last search for resources along the Amazon. Now, listen on. What a fitting ending for you, Dash Dashing. How terribly apt that I should be able to use the very technology that has crowned me the Bandit King of Broadcasting, as you so eloquently phrase it, to destroy you. You'll never get away with this, Croesus! Oh, but I shall, Miss Paris, oh, but I shall. Don't you realize that you are all now at my mercy? Utilizing the same principles of wireless telegraphy, I will prove able to guide a flock of voracious vampire bats direct to source. In only a few minutes, I shall seat myself at the controls of my largest valve set, and before you can say Jack Robinson, terror shall come tumbling down upon you through those very ventilation shafts you can see above your heads. You might say that my little pets will batter you into submission. <laughs> <laughs> You'll forgive me if I don't stay any longer, but it's getting a little hot in here and I really must spread my wings. <laughs> I can't believe it! We're done for! Another minute, we'll be crushed by Chiroptera! Now just hold on, gang. There's nothing here that a little applied rationality can't resolve. No problem that's insuperable. I calculate that we have approximately one minute before Creases reaches his valve set. Another 30 seconds before the bats traverse the ventilation shafts. There's not much time to prepare, but it should be enough. <sighs> to start with, we must get rid of these rope bonds tying our hands. That's the easy part. The raw edge of that broken planter should suffice to fray the rope. I'll get on it, Dash. If I can free my own hands, it'll be child's play to untie the two of you. In the meantime, Cappy, answer me this. Since you reformed, don't you attend meetings of the Salvation Army Choir at night? Why, say, that's most every time when I'm in town and twice on a Tuesday, but why'd you ask now? Ain't we in a perilous situation here? Wait, Cappy, I think I see what Dash is getting at. Ah, you do, huh? Sure, what range you sing? Well, it ain't real manly to admit it, but falsetto. Hey, but I still don't see why you'd wanna... Hey! Do you think you can whistle in falsetto, too? It's like this, Cappy. As soon as those vampire bats are unleashed, they'll be homing in upon us using their unique ability to bounce echoes from off surrounding walls and objects. Deadly precision instruments, manufactured by Mother Nature. But if we were somehow able to obfuscate those natural homing tendencies by introducing a variant form of high-pitched sound wave oscillation... Whistling in falsetto. You got it, guy. And not a moment too soon. Sounds like they're on their way. Pitch high, Cappy. The acoustics in here are terrible. Now, Cappy. That's it. Attaboy. Watch out. They're circling. Yes, they're up. Bamboozled. It worked. Yay. We've done it, Dash. My hands are practically... Free! Hallelujah to that! All right! As I hoped, 
Redirecting those critters has also allowed us the use of an alternative exit from this aviary. Glass walls and a ton's worth of bats sure don't mix. Sheesh, what a set, though. Now we just gotta deal with any guards still hanging around outside. I say we treat them to some music of a different kind, Dash. A little of the old chin music. Hearing you say that, Cappy, is music to my ears. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Hope against hope. My darling Dolores. Dr. Dashi, is that you? Tut tut, Professor Dostoevsky Tolstoyevanovich. Isn't it sufficient that I should come and pay you a visit? It's churlish not to appreciate that. And when I've taken trouble to bring you news that I'm certain you're eager to hear. Yet. Oh, I'm afraid so, Professor. The rescue attempt got up by your loving protege and her compatriots failed dismally. You find me returning, having delivered the coup de grace. I will never be forgiven for what has been done today, Croesus, and neither will you. You wound me, Professor, you truly do. After all, I have so much to thank you for. Had you not convinced those dupes you were threatened by me, Instead, in working in league with me, they'd never have trooped here hoping to free you from incarceration. <laughs> Damn me for a traitor, a gullible old goat. How could I have let myself be persuaded by you, Croesus? Just a matter of a thousand dollar debt? Enough if it was ever to be revealed to ruin your standing in the scientific community irretrievably. But there's no need to worry. I feel you've honored the debt sufficiently now that I'm prepared to service it for you. Don't you want a reward for services rendered? There's no more dealing to be done, Croesus. Our partnership's finished. You can manufacture your secret device with no help from me. My conscience will be clear. As a matter of fact, Professor, I wouldn't have trusted you with the work anyhow. Far too easy an opportunity for you to sabotage the operation in accordance with those moral scruples of yours. I had considered letting you go, job well done and all that, but this little protest has convinced me it wouldn't be such a good idea. Who could say when you might next want to badmouth the Croesus Broadcasting Corporation, BTCBC Limited? Boys, will you step in here a moment? You wouldn't dare push us to it, it. Come on, Mr. Too bad there's no room for sentiment in business, Professor. Too bad. <laughs> My lucky night. Gonna have to fold on you at this point, fellas. Been a pleasure playing blackjack with you, gentlemen. Little gin, little vermouth over ice, if you'd be so kind, bartender. Come into my parlor, says the spider to the fly. 
You are very persistent. Excuse me? Those little nods and wicked half-spiles you've been giving me across the blackjack table all night. Just willing me to come over and introduce myself, not so? Has anyone ever told you that you have the most remarkable eyes? Oh, yes? Not to mention that accent. It's a pleasure to make your acquaintance, Fräulein. <laughs> How charming of you to notice. But the correct form of address is Gräfin. A countess? Indeed so. Countess Carlotta Matilde Everharder von Wolfshart. And you? The name's Pointsworth. Poindexter Pointsworth. You can call me Pong. And what is it that you do, Mr. Poinsvot? Pong, I insist. I trained as an attorney. But now it's stocks and bonds. Tonight is a little jolly with some of the surplus bills I've been stockpiling. But I wouldn't have pegged a countess for a high roller. Oh, in passing, perhaps. The truth is, my suite is nearby, courtesy of the owner, an old associate of mine, the industrious Croesus. He was a good friend to my late husband before Herman's accident. He gave funding to his Zeppelin projects. I've met Croesus once or twice myself. Nice of him to look out for an old friend's wife like that. Underneath that tough exterior beats a heart of gold, I'm sure. But where the heck are my manners? Can I offer you a drink? I'd rather continue this discussion in my own rooms. It's too crowded and noisy in here. You intrigue me, Mr. Poinsvot. Even if you are a lowly commoner. What do you say? I say I'd be a fool to turn down an offer like that when it comes from a woman as sophisticated and beautiful as you, Countess. Lead the way and I'll follow right behind. There shan't be a moment, my dear Poinsvot. Just a minute, sir, freshening up. Take as much time as you need, Countess. I'll make myself comfortable. Come on, come on. Why Dash couldn't invent a two-way wrist radio that works a little more effectively than this is... Ah, that's got it. Dash, Cappy, Dolores, are you receiving me? I haven't got much time to talk. I'll fill you in on the details later when I'm out of this joint. But I figured this much. The go-between delivered the blueprints to Croesus from Germany. The young lady in question is pretty blue ribbon, but the original development must have been overseen by her late husband. She may even be romancing Croesus. Shoot, time's up. Keeping yourself entertained out here, Mr. Pointsford? I'd hate to think that I was boring you. Not at all, I guarantee you. You're one lady deserving of my full attention. Would you mind lighting this darling cigarette for me? With pleasure. Holy, what do you think you're doing? Blowing smoke into a fella's face like that? Just go down wrong there! Far from it. These smokes are made to a very specific blend of my own devising. A distillate of chloroform. Heck no! I don't know who you really are, Poinsworth. But you've spent all night prying. Somebody sent you to sniff out secrets. But there are some secrets that demand to be kept hidden. I'm just a humble attorney. You don't expect me to believe that. 
I should deliver you straight to Croesus. I'm sure he would know what to do with you. And yet, I would like to offer you a little piece of the truth. Something for you to chew on in the final moments before you lose consciousness. You should know, I am here on behalf of the Partei, the NSDAP. Nazi. Yes. It's on our interest to see that the secret device is manufactured and distributed. Christus is a dupe. He has his own aims, of course. He intends to sell the device to the highest bidder. But they are pathetically limited. We'll dispose of him when he is of no further use. The device is intended for a far greater purpose. Its power will bring decadent Western civilization to its knees. Must warn Dash. So much worse than we thought. That's it. They must be holding him prisoner in the room behind that door. How can you be so certain, Dash? Don't forget, I've looked at the floor plans for this mansion. That room lies at the equidistant point between the aviary and the sweet housing Croesus's valve set. There's no other possibility, trust me. All right, but before we can get in and take a look-see, we're gonna need to deal with those goons patrolling the corridor. Leave this to me, boys. All this needs is a little feminine distraction. Hey, soldier! What's a bra gotta do to get a little tension around here? Say, it's a thing. Ooh, ooh, what's she down here? Hot dog, look at those pins. Oh, come on over here, baby, and let me tell you. Stow it, buster! Hello, <laughs> Cappy! On it! <clears throat> oh! <clears throat> here is an ambush! <clears throat> Billy, run and get help! Get help, Billy! Oh, yeah. oh. Oh. oh! Don't touch my face! Don't touch my hair! <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> Got it! Just what Dr. Dashing ordered. Okay, Cappy, stay out here. Raise the alarm as quick as possible and see if any reinforcements come down that pike. No problem. Let's go on in. <laughs> Professor Dostoevsky Tolstoy Ivanovich? Igor! Dash! This is terrible! It looks like he's been hurt badly. If Crocus is responsible for this, then I'll... Why, I'll... Just keep calm, Dolores. The first thing we need to do is transfer the professor out of here. Give me half an hour. I think we can improvise a stretcher and perhaps a drip feed from materials currently to hand. Don't worry, Professor Dostoevsky Tolstoy Ivanovich. You're gonna be fine. Dash, слушай меня. Listen to me, my дорогой друг. Fear I'm dying. You're in good hands now, Igor Dostoevsky Tolstoy Ivanovich. Should I die? You need to know, to know about the device. Mama, Mama, Daimini Asilio. Don't talk, Professor. It'll exhaust your strength. I have to talk. Maybe the last talking I ever do. The Charman invented it. Ever harder. A terrible thing. Grozny, Grozny. You must stop this device. Poised to destroy all the world that we hold dear. All right, take it easy. The Charman termed it Fernsehapparat, but that won't do in English. There is no good translation. Igor? Croesus insisted the device should have a name, a marketing necessity. 
only thing I could coin was neologism, an appalling mix of Greek and Latin. Professor, what is this thing? A device so terrible that it may have the power to enslave the entire world? I called it simply Televisia, the Television. Oh, oh my god! god! Will the terrifying technology of the Television yet be unleashed upon the free world? Will Poindexter manage to escape from the clutches of the Nazi Countess? Creatures finally get his just desserts, and can Dolores ever forgive her errant mentor? All the answers will be revealed in the next astounding installment of Dash Dashing Man of the Hour. Dash Dashing starred Henry Douthwaite as Dash Dashing and Brutus T. Croesus, Albert Clack as Professor and Poindexter Poinsworth, Lizzie Conrad as Countessa, Becky Wright as Dolores, and David John Watton as Announcer and Cappy the Mouth Capistrano. Directed by Tamsin Astbury and produced by Philip Dyer. For further credits and more information, please see our website on www bunbanter.com Are you back sitting by the water? That's right. I'm sitting here with my earbuds in and my smartphone. We're supposed to be off finding Adam Maxwell. I'm listening to Cartoon Carnival with Joe Bev. At waterlog.com? That's right. Waterlog with two G's dot com. Mind if we share those earbuds? Why not at all? Waterlog audio travels everywhere. Scooch over. All right. Watch it. Oh, would you listen to that? There's even a Waterlog smartphone app. You mean at waterlogwith2gs.com? Yep. Hello, did you just see a border collie walking across the creek wearing earbuds? Yep. Hi, I'm Joe Bev. This time on the Joe Bev Audio Theater, it's a brand new episode of Willoughby and the Professor. And now, the withering of Willoughby and the Professor, their ways in the worlds. Episode 18, Dimension X Revisited, or Willoughby Goes and Gets It. Written by Joe Bevilacqua and Robert J. Sarasa, and produced, directed, and voiced by Joe Bevilacqua. Adventures in Time and Space. 
Transcribed in future tense. Dimension X. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, bring you Dimension X. It was natural enough to be curious, but they were more than that. Boarders become a lot like a family, especially when they take their dinners together. And over the years, the reclusive professor's failure to join the others became an obsessive mystery to them, especially since his door was so visible from the dinner table, exactly centered within the frames of the successive archways at the passage from the vestibule to the parlor, and then from the parlor to the dining room. By now, it had all become a kind of grace, a nightly litany of speculation that began every meal. Why do we always have to discuss that poor man's affairs? Scolded Miss Dawson. Why, you cast him in more parts than Shakespeare has characters. What does it matter to you what he's doing in there? He's a scientist. He's a communist. And you're a dupe if you don't think he's up to something no good. Frank was a bus driver. And so naturally he was more skeptical of other people than a schoolmarm. In the five years since his discharge from the army, he'd traveled the 48 line and seen so many people sitting suspiciously at park benches and standing around public trash cans that he just knew the senator was right about all those spies and their microfilm drop sites. And it was starting to have an effect on America. Every day, more people passed slugs into the fare box. <laughs> Too many to just be common dishonesty. It was an insidious assault upon free enterprise itself. Miss Dawson, on the other hand, was an idealist. Even in the depths of her middle age, and with more than a handful of generations under her pedological belt, no amount of classroom unruliness or political agitation could dim the prospect in her mind for human improvement through learning, especially science. It was a certainty to her that the world was steadily becoming a better and better place. Thanks to people like the professor, who she was sure was a benevolent genius. Jeremiah Butler, on the other hand, knew the dark side of science and its monstrous inventions. Having given up his legs to a spray from a German machine gun as he went over the top of a trench in the Ardennes during the first war to end all wars, no one could convince him that science was good for anything other than a disability check from the Veterans Administration every month for the past 516, as regular as the wheel gears of his chair. Not even the still comely Miss Dawson, who, although just four years his elder, looked easily 20 years his junior, thanks mostly to Jeremiah's last 30 years of relentless bitter self-pity and dissolute lethargy. 
He filled his days with little more than the smoke from his cigarettes and a smoldering resentment of the able-bodied, weightlifting young Frank. The fortunate Frank, who had managed to escape entirely unscathed from his three years of World War II service as a general chauffeur on the dangerous roads in and around the basic training camp at Fort Dix, New Jersey, where they prepared unfortunate men like Jeremiah to go somewhere and be maimed or die. Scientist. <laughs> Communist. Murderer. I tell you he's a murderer, insisted Jeremiah. Mrs. Way grumped with exasperation. She could almost abide a murderer more than a self-pitying do-nothing. A widow for nearly 20 years, Mrs. Way had been a pretty woman in her younger days, but well, she was now showing the effects of 74 years upon her, a condition for which she expected no pity. She simply defeated it with cosmetic art, shaving the bristly remains of her eyebrows completely off and drawing in perfect replacements, a youthful eighth of an inch higher over her eyes, applying a sultry sky-blue shadow to her eyelids, a baby pink blush to her cheeks, and a lusty hot red lipstick to her lips, then dusting the whole of her face with a powder that made her smell like a delicious cotton candy. She might have been a wooden arcade gypsy in some penny-fortune vending machine, but with a volatile and chiefly sour temperament, accented with a Tourette's-like quirk of her voice that laced everything she said with a growling rumph at periodic points of punctuation, pitched low within her throaty but not unwomanly voice. It accented her usual irritation, pitched high her occasional pleasure. Even as she listened to others or mused to herself, she would erupt every so often with the honorary or more rarely delighted sounds of her disposition. Murderer? That's a thing to say about someone, isn't it? She barked at Jeremiah. Why don't you run to the district attorney and tell him, huh? Bring all your evidence and testimony. At least he pays his rent on time. Which is more than I can say for you. Mrs. Way, please. I hardly think that's an appropriate thing to say. Even sarcastically. To a man in Jeremiah's position. Why, he gave his legs for you. Gave him his wheels, didn't I? I'm a taxpayer, same as you, Miss Dawson. And I'll thank you for not making yourself the Emily Post of this boarding house. I don't need to be tutored by your discourtesy how to humor a delusional vet like Jeremiah, who lost any sense of responsibility. Too many years after his legs, if you ask me. You see, this is what the communists do. It's class warfare, I tell you. He's slowly indoctrinating us, 
raising our consciousness with his aesthetic ways. Pretty soon, each one of us will stop coming down to dinner, just like him, just like all the communists. They won't take a meal together because they don't believe in saying grace. We should have gone to the FBI a long time ago. Frank was off on his fixation again and eager for an argument. But both Miss Dawson and Mrs. Way had long ago learned to ignore his outbursts and just roll their eyes, each in their respective fashion. Miss Dawson with patrician disdain and Mrs. Way with carnival mockery. But Jeremiah hadn't learned anything in a long time. Taking aim, with squinting eyes, directly at Frank's chewing chin across the table, he set about saying the one new thing that had ever been said at dinner for the past five years of their collective cohabitation. The FBI don't want none of this business. It's for the police! He barked with a jerking nod of his head, in emphatic punctuation, then, screwing his brow into even greater concentration, he leaned over his plate and whispered in confidence to his dinner mates in a sweep from left to right. Did you ever notice that no one ever goes into his rooms, but every once in a while, someone comes out? Some stranger you've never seen and never will see again in the neighborhood. then, I suppose, him being a murderer and all, replied Mrs. Way sarcastically. <laughs> Don't tell me. I'm the only one who lives here on the ground floor with him. I'm in the parlor most of the day. I see who comes and goes. To Jeremiah, the point was incontrovertible. No one knew the ground floor of Mrs. Way's boarding house as he did. With the scrutiny of a detective inspecting the scene of a crime, the mentally housebound amputee spent day after day tracing and retracing the plan and pathways of the floor, which were of Victorian design. The front door opened onto a vestibule with stairs along the left wall leading to the second floor. Immediately to the right was an archway to the parlor. To the left of the parlor, toward the rear of the house, was a dining room, separated from the parlor by another archway. Behind a door at the right of the staircase was the kitchen, which was also separated from the dining room by a swinging door. Most of the boarders resided on the second floor, with the exception of Jeremiah, who occupied only one small room, formerly a large walk-in pantry, on the right side of the house next to the kitchen, and the professor, who occupied the entire left side of the first floor, with a door immediately at the bottom of the stairs and opposite the archways of the parlor and dining room. But through that door, Jeremiah had never passed, however much he might have imagined doing so as he studied it day after day. It was out of this door, exactly at that moment, that Professor Hudabras exploded and bolted across the vestibule and parlor into his always empty seat at the dining room table. The startling speed of his arrival was an odd effect for a person of his physically sluggish type. 
He was a small, egg-shaped man of an indeterminate middle age. His hair was thinning, not only on his head, but his facial cheeks as well, which puffed out like a poorly bearded blowfish when he spoke. Even his large and ham-like hands seemed ill-suited to motion of any kind. Yet, jutting them out awkwardly from the arms of his wrinkled white lab coat, he grabbed onto the edge of the tabletop with the snapping efficiency of a lobster and pulled his chair up to the table to announce with breathless urgency that a guest of his would be arriving momentarily. You must forgive my usual absence, but I have a guest arriving momentarily. The table fell into a stunned silence until Mrs. Way managed to recover her hostess wits. She growled quizzically. Yes, a young gentleman, and one of considerable appetite. Might you have an extra chop or two to spare? He asked anxiously. Why, I suppose he could have the rest of mine, said the taken-aback landlady with the confused blend of sarcasm and odd but authentic congeniality she reserved only for the professor in their individual dealings, which really comprised just monthly exchanges of rent and receipt, but somehow in her mind amounted to something more, something doting. The response to her offer came immediately, but from a different quarter of the room. Oh boy, lamb chops, where do I sit? In one simultaneous glance, all of the diners looked up to see a just barely prepubescent, blonde, tousle-headed, cherub-faced boy, dressed in denim blue jeans, red and white tattersall shirt, and black and white sneakers. He could have been any older brother's pest of a younger brother, all eagerness and no restraint. Filled with maternal impulse at the sight, Miss Dawson was the first to recover her speech and invite the boy to occupy the space next to her, which he did, almost simultaneously to forking up the lone lamb chop from the serving plate at the table center, as the professor looked on in apparent amazement. As the boy cut and chewed, with eyes as big as an empty stomach, Miss Dawson gazed at him admiringly. Although she adored children, she had never married, nor bore any offspring herself. Not for lack of suitors, but because she never found one suitable, and instead chose to devote her life to the children of her classroom. The other diners looked at Willoughby in a different kind of stupefaction. Well, with the exception of Jeremiah, who thrilled visibly with what he considered plain vindication of his theoretical fears. Looking at the bus driver with his left eye and closing his right eye as a signal, 
he addressed a question to the boy. Welcome, boy. Visiting your uncle, are you? Interrupting his chewing with the suddenness of spiritual insight, the boy responded gleefully. Nah. But I was one once. Hey, you got any lemonade? Kids love lemonade, you know. Perhaps I should explain, interjected the professor, rising from his seat and pocketing his ham hands into his lab coat. This young man is no relation of mine. He is from a place much farther away than anywhere my family dwell. His name is... His name is... And then he paused to ponder the boy's aspect for a second before finishing his identification. His name... His name is... His name is... Willoughby. Looking up at the professor, the boy shrugged with agreeable indifference and returned his attention to his chop. Willoughby, is it? Responded Mrs. Way with a discernible note of fretful skepticism. Hmm. I see. That's a Russian name, isn't it? Challenged Frank. Well... It's somebody's name, corrected Jeremiah. It's a perfectly nice name, Willoughby, interjected Miss Dawson protectively. And you seem like a perfectly nice and hungry boy. Mrs. Way, don't you have another helping for him? He's famished. Yeah, I want some more chops. Shouldn't we be leaving now, Willoughby? inquired the professor in a fatherly tone. Uh, it's getting rather late. Uh, that's okay. I can stay here forever. I got permission. We can play a game. A parlor game. You guys know go and get it? Master Willoughby, please. We are not children, pleaded Professor Hudabras. And dinner time, I believe, is over, isn't it? Mrs. Way? I think it's safe to say the kitchen is closed. But the parlor is certainly open. I'd be curious to see what sort of parlor games your friend likes to play. Why don't you teach us the rules now, Master Willoughby? And please go slow for the benefit of Frank and Jeremiah here, they're not very good students, as I'm sure Miss Dawson can testify. The two men glowered back at Mrs. Way, with resentment similar to that which they expressed each Saturday night, TV night at the boarding house, when their request for Gorgeous George was always vetoed by the landlady's insistence on Sid Caesar. Willoughby simply ignored their dispositions and excitedly explained. Well, basically, you each take a turn thinking up something for me to go and get. For you, from the future. And then I go get it. Of course, the advanced version of the game gets really complicated. But we can stick to the beginner's version until you guys, you know, get the hang of things. The future, huh? 
responded the bus driver with a mocking sneer. Hear that, Jeremiah? <laughs> he goes and gets stuff from the future. You'd have to have a future to get something from it. The crippled soldier scowled. You are listening to Willoughby Goes and Gets It on the Joe Bev Audio Theater, which will return in a moment. Are you sick of that smart aleck, Sherlock Holmes, always knowing all the answers? Well, if you are, you should check out The Misadventures of Sherlock Holmes. It is the best radio series about Sherlock Holmes you'll ever hear. It's based on the characters of Arthur Conan Doyle. But in this one, Sherlock's the dumb one and Watson's the smart one. Hilarious! Comedy and mystery are happy bedfellows in The Misadventures of Sherlock Holmes. Award-winning veteran radio producer Joe Bevilacqua's 10-part radio series plays humorous homage to the classic characters of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The stories are filled with sly references to the original canon. So check out The Misadventures of Sherlock Holmes at waterlogwith2gs.com. The withering of Willoughby and the Professor, their ways in the worlds. This device I fashioned last week has the unique capacity to pucker space. Pucker? Yes. Push it this way. Pull it that way. Allow me to demonstrate. Listen as I turn this knob. What's that? That is space being puckered this way. Now listen as I turn the knob the other way. Wow! What's that? That is space being puckered that way. Wow! The Withering of Willoughby and the Professor is available at Amazon and all online vendors. Get it now at waterlog.com. That's waterlog with two G's.com. The tortoise sounds like it's about to crack apart from the strain. We can't last much longer. What's David doing? I have to get up there, but how? The Sonic Society Season 10 is written and produced by Jack J. Ward and David Alt, with original music provided by Sharon B. at SharonB.com. All features, interviews and audio drama shorts are owned completely by their originators and provided to the Sonic Society through Creative Commons licensing. The Sonic Society itself originates from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.
This has been an Electric Vicuna production. This segment of the Mutual Audio Network is brought to you by Mr. Biddle's Little Skittles. Love candy? Mr. Biddle has Little Skittles, or bigger Skittles you can whittle, or middle Skittles that make good vittles. So diddle with the Skittles that are never a riddle, Mr. Biddle's Little Skittles. Located between Katie Cootie's Kit Kat Counter and Gnarly Nathan's Natural Necco Wafer Warehouse.